Good morning, Door Creek. It's good to be together with you today. And if you're a guest here today, welcome. My name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, part of the teaching team. So um, it's been a great week in the life of our church. So we've held our soccer camp with the Chicago Eagle coaches, 28 coaches. These are college soccer players that love Jesus from around the country that work with Chicago Eagles ministry. And uh, we had 166 kids sign up and show up this year. Over half of them weren't from the church. And 12 of those kids said yes to Jesus this last week. And so putting their faith and trust in Christ. Isn't that great? So some of you hosted coaches, thank you. Some of you brought your kids. Some of you had your kids invite their friends. We're all in it together. Your generosity in this place supports ministries like that. So thanks a lot. So today, um, we're in the book of Samuel again. If you weren't here last week, uh, let me just give you a quick background on the book. So it's at the period of the judges, and the period of the judges has this kind of moniker over it that goes like this. Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. That was not a good thing. They were deciding what was right and wrong. They weren't following God, and there's this cycle of downward cycles, God raising up a deliverer, one of the judges, and then the people fell away from God, and it all cycled again. And so we're at the end of the period of the judges in Samuel, and in chapter 3, it says this, kind of another epitaph over the times. It says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And when God's word is rare with God's people, there's usually a reason. And though it doesn't give it to us explicitly, implicitly, here's what we know. The religious leadership was bad. It was corrupt. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they are mishandling the holy things of the sacrifices. They're sleeping with the women who serve at the temple. It was broken. The, the people followed the leadership, right? The compromised leadership brought compromise with the people. They're mixing in with their worship of Jehovah God, of Yahweh. Also, these other foreign gods like the Baal and the Astra, the sun god, the moon goddess. So they're defeated by the, by the Philistines. And they cry out to God, for an answer, what happened? Why did we get defeated? But they never asked why they got defeated. They never called on Samuel, who is God's prophet, God's voice. And so what happens, they say, well, you know what? Let's just grab the Ark of the Covenant. It was the very symbol of God's presence. His presence rested right over that chest, overlaid in gold. So let's get the covenant instead of trusting in the God of the covenant. And the results were horrific. So there was defeat, 30,000 died. Eli, their, their judge, their leader, their high priest, 98 years old, he falls over. Hophni and Phinehas, they die. It's just bad, and the ark is captured. So we're in chapter 15, a long way from chapter 3 and 4 where we were last week. So what happens is, in chapter 8, after this great revival, and everybody says we're going to get rid of our false gods, or we're going to be all in with God, chapter 8, they go, but we want a king like all the other nations. And the reason they want a king like all the other nations is they're looking at Samuel's sons, and Samuel's sons aren't much better than Eli's sons. They're not going to be good leaders. So God says to Samuel, who's got his feelings hurt, he says, it's not about you, Sam. It's about me. They've rejected me as their king, and give him a king. And so they choose, God chooses Saul, 
who's hiding in the suitcases when they go looking for him because he's, he's not wanting this kind of position. But he looked the part because literally it says he's head and shoulders above everybody else. So he's this big, handsome, strong dude. He looks like a king, and that's what they want. Somebody who looked like a king like all the other nations. And you know what? God gives him a new heart. Chapter 10, verse 9. And it's a heart full of praise and worship to God. They find Paul, Saul, worshiping with the prophets of God. He is seeking God for counsel. God gives him a victory over the Ammonites. And it's all good, all good, until it's not good. And it's these two big mistakes that are the, they're one and the same. We're going to look at the second one in chapter 15. So grab your Bible. We're towards the beginning of the Bible, if you're new to the Bible. It's after the book of Ruth, kind of before the books of the Kings or 2 Samuel. Hey, it's always a quicker way to just go to table of contents, 1 Samuel 15. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the story, the historical context here. Then we're going to look at the big mistake, kind of do a little analysis of how to get there, and then the lessons that we learn here from Saul's mistake. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. Like he didn't do that very well in chapter 13. This is what the Lord Almighty says. And these are shocking words. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. We'll talk about that in a bit. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites, so I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. All right, so the setting. The setting is this declaration of war against the Amalekites where God is asking Saul and his army to be an extension of his justice. Now, if you're like most normal people reading these first verses, we are far more bothered by God's command to Saul to wipe out all the Amalekites, including the women and children. Then we are Saul's incomplete partial obedience. It's really interesting, right? But seriously, that, that's like, whoa, what's going on here? I, I, for a lot of people to go, yeah, that's my understanding of the God of the Old Testament. He's just brutal. I don't like that version of God. I like the New Testament version. So let's just kind of do some work here to try and understand a couple of things. Number one, what do we know about the Amalekites? So in recent history, like in the book of Judges, we know that they're regularly raiding the land of Israel. 
They're coming in, they're plundering, they're capturing people in places like in chapter 3, Jericho. In, Josh, in Judges chapter 6, we read this. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, there they are, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. So, I mean, we're used to going to the grocery store, right? We're not thinking about it like we should be. When the crops are gone, when the animals are destroyed, they don't have anything. This is decimating. This is huge. So neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys, they just take it all. So they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Then when you go back and do the history in um, what happened when it says they waylaid the Israelites on their way from Egypt to uh, the promised land, we have Moses talking about that very thing in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came up out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. Remember they're being chased by Pharaoh and his army going through the sea, you know, all this stuff, traveling, right? They're weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. So think about, this is, this is like millions of people. This is a lot of people. So who would be lagging behind? The vulnerable, the sick, the aged, the little ones lagging behind, and they're picking him off and attacking him. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he has given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under the heaven. Do not forget. So in our passage, verse 18, we find out that they're still wicked. In verse 33, we find out this King Agag is a brutal murderer and has been killing children. So these guys are bandits, they're raiders, they're treacherous, and they've been after God's people all the time. And God is asking his people, Saul and his army, to execute the judgment that they deserved. It was a holy God whose justice is right and fair and whose justice, as you understand the Amalekites in the history here, is patient. He didn't wipe them out 300 years ago when this happened and all the things that were going on since then. He was patient and God is always patient. We remember that in the midst of a very troubling story here where God in his perfect justice is executing it and it's shocking, but we remember at the same time his severe justice is also connected with his great patience and mercy as he's literally given them hundreds of years to get right with God. All right, so that's kind of the setting. If you will, it's this holy war that God is asking Saul to conduct on his behalf. This whole thing to completely destroy is used eight times. It's the same idea that God gives Joshua back in Joshua where they're going up against the city of Jericho and he says, everything in Jericho is devoted to me. It belongs to me. So I don't keep any of that stuff. It all's to go to me. And remember, that's when Achan saw some of the gold, saw some of the fine linen clothing, said, man, I'd really like that stuff. Put it under his tent. And he, his wife, and all his family were stoned to death for their rebellion against God's clear command. 
All right, so that gets us up to his mistake. You know, at a glance, what's clear is he just, God's command was clear, and he clearly didn't fully obey. But we're going to see more nuance to it. But let's look at what the word says about what happened to Saul and what he did. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, God says through Samuel, because he's turned away from me and not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Probably a little angry at God and Saul. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the bets of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Well, tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you once were small in your own eyes, humble, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? That word pounce carries the idea of to dart greedily. Most of the times we read about it in the scripture, it's connected with a vulture, with a bird of prey, all right? But in Samuel, it's used back in his first mistake in chapter 14. Let me give you a quick kind of reader's digest on, on that. So, um, they're up against the Philistines. Jonathan goes out on a sneak attack with his armor bearer to go attack a garrison. He kills 20 Philistine soldiers. There's this panic and dread that God places over the whole Philistine camp. And all of a sudden, for the first time in a long time, the Israelites are just crushing the Philistines. And before they go out into battle, King Saul says, guys, I'm, I'm putting a curse on anybody who eats anything until sundown because I want you to go wipe them out completely and I, I want to be avenged for the earlier losses that we faced against the Philistines. So what happens is Jonathan's not there. So he's had this really courageous attack where hand-to-hand -hand combat, he kills 20 of these guys and he's engaged in the conflict all day and he's weary and he's hungry and he's worn out and he sees some honey there on the ground or wherever that was and he sticks his staff in it, maybe it's up in a tree, right? And he, he's just eating this honey and it was just like, oh, I just feel so revived. Someone says, aha, you're not supposed to do that, dude. Your dad said there's a curse on any. He says, I didn't hear it. And then he makes some commentary that basically said, my dad's an idiot for saying that. <laughs> and so what happens is at the end of the day, when the sun goes down, it says the soldiers pounced on anything that was walking that could be eaten. 
and they were eating these, these animals before the blood was drained out of them, which was not good. God's word was clear. You cannot eat the blood because it's symbolic of the life. So this was bad, bad, bad. And to make it worse, Saul finds out because he's not getting an answer from God that something's wrong. And so he starts doing this, you know, throwing lots and picking straws. And all of a sudden it turns out that it's his son who gets the short end of the stick, the, the umen and the thumen, which is a way of trying to discern what's going on here. And he finds out that Jonathan actually had broken the curse. And regardless of the fact that he heard it or not, he's got to kill him. And the soldiers basically say, no, you're not. He's like the hero of today. And they kind of came between him and Saul and says, no way are we going to let you do that. So there's a bunch of reasons why I want you to know that story because his whole relationship with the soldiers changed and it shows up in this story. So that was about pouncing. You didn't completely destroy, rather the very best things, you greedily pounced for yourself. Why'd you do this evil in the eyes of the Lord? Verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. You can almost hear him stamping his feet. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. Whoops. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order, hello, Samuel, to sacrifice him to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Nice try. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in, obey, in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed or to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion, that's what he's done, is like the sin of divination, conjuring up some evil spirit to determine what you should do in the future. And arrogance and pride like the evil of idolatry. He's guilty of both. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So the big mistake is, is not just that he didn't just, he didn't just disobey God's clear command, right? But he wrapped his rebellion, which is what God calls it, in this kind of make-believe devotion and religious activity, which is just a cover for his flat-out disobedience, rebellion that was wrapped up in pride and arrogance. That's what he calls it. He, he said, look, the, the idolatry here is you are so proud. The idolatry here is self. You're, you're guilty of worshiping yourself by doing this evil in my sight and thinking you knew better than me. You're guilty of divination, of conjuring up some evil spirit to determine what you're supposed to do because that's how twisted you are with my clear command. And it's broken and it's an arrogant heart. It's a rebellious spirit and you've done evil in the sight of the Lord. The arrogance is clear. He goes to find Saul. Where's Saul? He's gone down to Carmel to do what? To set up a monument in honor of Jehovah. No, that's not what it said. In his own honor. In his own honor. So that everybody would know. Because this guy has massive insecurities that are coupled with his massive pride and arrogance. It's a monument, whether it was a statue or whether it was like the historic monuments where it tells the story of that location. Here's what happened. 
all to his honor. And he's completely oblivious to his fatal fall. He blesses Samuel. The Lord bless you and has the audacity to proclaim, I've carried out everything that the Lord's asked me to do. Everything. And his delusional bubble is quickly burst when Samuel asks the two questions. So tell me, what's, what's this bleeding of sheep? Tell me, what's this lowing of cattle that I hear? I'm hearing a lot of baas and I'm hearing a lot of moos. What's going on here, Saul? So Sam reminds him of his humble beginnings and how God made him king. He forgot who he was and where he came from. And he wasn't the last leader. He wasn't the last king to do that. Kings and those who lead. Any of us who lead. It's easy for us to forget that we always serve and lead under God the king. He forgot that. So, you know, he pulls this. He's kind of channeling Adam here in the garden. Well, it was the woman you gave me that caused me to eat the apple. You know, it wasn't my fault. It was Eve's fault. And he goes, hey, it wasn't me. It was the soldiers. Go back to verse 9, and it says, no, actually it was Saul, and it was the soldiers, who spared Agak and took the very best and gave God the very worst, the leftovers. So having tried the deflection route, he goes to the debating route, and he tries to win the day. No, I did do this. I went on the mission. I completely destroyed it. It was the soldiers thing. And then we see that really important verse, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed or to listen is better than the fat of rams. At the heart of the word obedience is the word shema, to hear that we actually hear what God, God has said. And the reason we know that we've heard what God has said is we've done what God has asked us to do. Now, this truth about obedience being better than religious activity is repeated throughout. I'll give you a couple examples. In the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, these pithy, amazing sayings, Proverbs 21.3, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So you do sacrifice without justice, that's worthless to God and to yourself. He says the same thing in uh, Mark chapter 12. This is now a scribe having a conversation with Jesus, and the scribe who is his teacher of the law says this about the great commandment. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So, having called him out for his rebellion, he makes it clear. Because you've rejected the word, God has rejected you as king. You reject God's word, you are no longer fit to be a leader for God. So then we come to his confession. And at best, it's messy. It's probably better to say, and we can't know for sure, although we know a lot here to say, no, it's pretty bogus. It's pretty messed up. So at first it sounds legitimate, verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Now verse 30, after him being rebuffed and after him tearing Samuel's robe as he's turning to leave and hearing that God's now removed the kingdom from his and torn it from his hands to give it to someone else. In verse 30, he says again, Saul replies, I've sinned, Samuel. Please 
But listen to what he says. But please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. And so it's broken. Having lost his grip on God's word, the deep insecurities in his life have got it so that he, he's just completely in a situation where he's devastated by the consequences, more concerned about his honor than God's. Now, here, here's something we want to remember about repentance. Repentance is this word that means a change of mind that leads to a change of action. So, the, the change in mind and change of action goes like this. The change of mind goes, oh, I did that. I thought it was a good thing to do. I thought it was a good shortcut to take. And now I'm just going to acknowledge that was not. That was wrong. I crossed the line. I fell short of the mark. That was sin. God, please forgive me. That's confession. Contrition is the second C. Contrition means that we're sorrowful over our sin and how it's affected my relationship with God. Not the consequences of my sin and how it's changed my reality and my future. Lots of people have what the Bible calls, 1 Corinthians 7, worldly sorrow. Oh, man, I've had lots of men cry, lots of tears in my office when their infidelity has come to light. But what they're really sorrowful, we find out over time, is, ah, the changed reality and the new consequences that they're facing. They're, they're really sorrowful about the new reality that they're facing and not their sin and the hurt that they brought and offense they brought against God and their spouse. So change of mind, confession, contrition, and a commitment to obey. And what we see here is, no, he doesn't have that. And if you're not sure here from the text, all you need to do is read the rest of the story. And so what we find out is in chapter 16, verse 2, when God says, Samuel, I want you to go find this new guy because I've rejected Saul and I need to find a man after my own heart and I know who he is and he's one of Jesse's sons, so get your flask with the oil and head over to Jesse's house to anoint him as king. And he goes, I can't do that. Because if Saul finds out where I've been and what I've done, he'll kill me. And the rest of the book of Samuel is all about Saul, just this mad, crazed, madman trying to take out God's anointed. And anybody, including his son, who would get in his way from killing David, God's anointed. So how did he get there? How did he get there? Why wasn't his heart fully devoted? What, what happened? There was this carelessness with God's word. There, there was this complete weighing the circumstances that he faced in chapter 13, which were hard circumstances. The Philistines mounting an army. His army scared. The people hiding in caves. It's a lot of his army going AWOL and retreating. And Samuel hasn't showed up. And it's the beginning of the seventh day and I got to do something. What he should have done is just keep waiting and trusting God and taking him at his word. But he said, no, I got to get the sacrifices going and I got to do something here to take control of the situation. And so he allowed the circumstances to outweigh God's word. He allowed the pressure of the soldiers. So the reason I told you that, that story is, 
in chapter 14 is he's lost their respect and actually his voice no longer has an authoritative tone because he was the one who had this rash, crazy vow that said, anybody that eats anything, you'll be dead if I find out before you, you know, before you rout the enemy. And they all said, mm-mm, we're not following that command. We're not letting you follow that command. So he's lost this huge thing going on with the leader of the troops and his troops. And, and so he talks about, well, you know, I, I, I gave in to the, I was afraid of the men. So I gave in to them. And so there's lessons to be learned all over the place. And the first one is all about obedience. And it goes like this. Selective or incomplete partial obedience is really only disobedience dressed up. When it comes to obedience, it's not a dart game. You don't get points for not hitting the bullseye when it comes to obedience. You got to hit the bullseye. You got to do what God asks you to do. He didn't do that. Perhaps he thought getting it mostly right is all that God requires. And when you have that thinking, you're getting it all wrong. So how do you get there? I would say there is a carelessness with God's word. He knew what God clearly commanded, but he allowed the circumstances and the pressure of his men to cause him to turn away and not trust in God's word. A carelessness. Now, from a human perspective, if you're writing the history of this and didn't know all the full story, didn't know his own heart and all that we know, you'd go, huge victory. He was strong. He was victorious. He showed lots of courage here in this battle and and good leadership it all looks like a raging success and God says it couldn't have been further from that you failed you were weak in your faith and you have been rejected no silver star no medal of honor you're out I'm finding a new leader and so it came at a great cost At the end of the chapter, we find out that Samuel will never see Saul again. And it also means that Saul never called for him. So he disconnected himself from the word of God. And when that happens, when that happens, man, there's just all kinds of losses. When we are not connected to God in his word, written word and Christ, his living word, will suffer grave consequences. We see that in Saul's life and we experience it in our own. He lacked direction, so too we. God's word is a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path. Psalm Psalm 119, 105. When we trust in him, he will make our way straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So he's lacking direction. He's lacking security. He's profoundly insecure. And that comes, he should have found his security in the fact that God had chosen him, that God had given him a new heart, that God had blessed him in his early days if he'd gone back to remember those things. And he lacked the courage to lead and live well. When this happens in our life, disconnected from, our, from the word of God, we grow incapable of actually seeing ourselves because the word of God is like a mirror. The Spirit uses the Word of God like it's the Spirit's doing that right now with us today, going, wow, I'm like Saul in this. But when we're disconnected from the Word, it's not happening. And so we can't actually take hold of God's gracious, patient mercy 
as we're just disconnected. And there's a forgetfulness to it. So one of the things that the kings were supposed to do, according to Deuteronomy 17, they were to take a scroll and they were to write down all the words of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's a lot. They were to read it. They were to keep it by their side. They were to read it every day. And they were to revere God as they followed God's word. And as they did, blessing, success, victory. He didn't do that. That's clear. The word of God was not close. He wasn't immersed. If he had been immersed in the word of God, he would have remembered the story uh, back in Exodus 19 and 20 when Moses goes up on the mountain for the, getting the Ten Commandments and he's up there like for 40 days and everybody goes, he's obviously died in the presence of God. And so Aaron, you gotta, you gotta help us here. And Aaron, remember what he does? He says, give me your silver and gold. And this is Aaron's account. He said, and so Moses, I just threw it like this in the fire. Pop, out jumped the golden calf. Anyways, <laughs> he actually... He actually fashioned the golden calf. That was just his rationalization of his grave sin. And like, that was really bad that they didn't wait. And he forgot that in chapter 13, the importance of waiting and all that went on when God brought a severe judgment against the people of God. He forgot the story of, 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 of Jericho, not in the first books of the law, but that would be history, an oral history that would have been known in his day what happened at Jericho when the city was under the ban. Everything was devoted to God for destruction and Achan took the stuff. He pounced greedily. He forgot that story. And, and, and the damage that it caused that Achan, his wife, his kids, his whole family stoned. He was forgetful for the word of God and of the word of God. So let me give us three signs that, that point to we're guilty of this kind of partial, incomplete obedience, this inadequate repentance, this kind of make-believe devotion to God. So when we rationalize our disobedience with false piety, with religious activity, this, yeah, but I was going to, we were going to offer it all to God. You know, this was, I was going to do this, this. No, when we're dressing things up, that, that's, that's not good. When, when we're guilty of pouncing greedily on the things that belong to God. I was just, the image in my mind was, have you ever had that pinata party? And when, it, when one of the kids actually breaks it open and all the candy, right, goes on the floor, that's pouncing. That's just like, get as much candy as you can. Yeah, when, when we're pouncing and grabbing, holding on to the things that actually belong to God, giving him the leftovers and saving the very best, that, that, that we're falling short. When I'm more concerned with the consequences than I am with the offense towards God, my new reality, ex instead of my relationship with God. When I'm more concerned about my honor in those situations than God's, those are indications. He needed the word of God. We need the word of God to bring the questions. And I don't know what the question is like for us. For, for, for Saul it was, what's this bleeding of sheep? What's this lowing of cattle that I hear? What are the questions for us? What are those sheep? What are those cattle in our day? So let me take a crack at it. 
Who's in your bed? Whose bed are you in? What are you looking at on your phone, your computer? What are those office supplies doing in your apartment? What are you doing with all that money I've given you? What's that you're putting in your body? What's that hatred, envy, jealousy doing in your heart? What are the bleeding sheep? What are the lowing cattle in our life that would wake us up from our delusion that we're completely following God's command? So the lesson about obedience, to obey God fully from the heart. Then there's a lesson on good gifts that God has given us. Don't squander the good gifts God has given us. I mean, the good gifts were immense. He gave them the kingship, right? He gave them a new heart. And all the things necessary to succeed, he gave them God's word, he gave them God's prophet, He gave him a great son, full of faith and courage. He had all the success you could want in those early days, and he frittered it all away. He squandered God's good gifts when he mishandled God's word and was careless. There's a third lesson, and it's about worship. The heart of worship is a life fully submitted to God. To obey is better than sacrifice. And so I was reading this morning, or actually listening, and I'm working through the chronological Bible in the message this year, and it was working through Isaiah 29, and here's a verse that's right on this very point. The Lord says, these people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. That's hopefully what we've been doing this morning together, singing these beautiful songs of praise, but he says this, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. In the book of Amos, he says this, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. So we can have lips and mouths engaged in worship and a heart that is far removed from God. And so when we come together on the weekend, our desire is, as our hearts are are bound together to love Christ with all that we have and are, that it would be the impetus to live a life of worship where we're worshiping God in all of life. And so we don't just worship God an hour when we hear the message preached and we sing and maybe give an offering. We have the opportunity to worship God in all of life, to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, showing that his will is good and pleasing and perfect as we don't conform to the ways of this world, but have minds transformed to the word of God so that we live out the word of God. And so here we are, like, this is like, this is what we're doing. This is like what I'm doing right now. 
And the easy thing to do is to say, but I go, oh my God, I'm a pastor. Like I work really hard on this mess. I spend a lot of time on this. I give a lot of our resources to this church. I give a lot of my time. And go, and so I'm good, right? Maybe. Like the question is, Mark, where's your heart? Is it fully submitted to Christ? And the reality is, it, it, it is never going to be fully submitted to Christ all the time. And that's why we hang on to the one who truly had a heart after God. So he says, I want to, I, I've rejected Saul. I'm going to find a man after my own heart. Enter King David on his best day. He's only a shadow of his son who's going to come set up that eternal kingdom. 2 Samuel 7, 14. All talking about Jesus Christ who will rule forever. And when Jesus came to earth, this is what he said according to Hebrews 10, 5, and 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. He's pleased with obedience. Jesus is saying, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And God's will was to have God's son crucified on a cross, rejected, not by the Father who delighted in him and loved him and was pleased by everything he did because he perfectly kept God's law, but rejected by his own. And he didn't come in royal robes. He was wrapped in rags. He lived in obscurity, born in poverty, and he hung on the cross naked in great humiliation. And he came to serve, not to be served, to give his life away for rebels like Saul, like me, like us. And he's the one we turn to when we're called up short and go, man, he's got part of my heart. And I've been thinking, that's pretty good. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that I'm resisting. There's a lot of cattle. There's a lot of sheep in my life that show that my heart's not wholly engaged with God. So we turn to him, to Christ, for mercy. When we've been careless with his word, when we squandered his good gifts, when our sacrifice and offerings and praise and is just a substitute for true heart worship. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus who lived it all right all the time always was obeying you shows us what it looks like to have a heart wholly devoted and Lord we just confess that's that's not us that's our desire you're working that we're making progress with your help and your spirit in us for those who don't know you we pray that you grant them faith to understand that they need you as their savior Father God we pray, Father, not only for, for your forgiveness, but for your strength, that we would live lives of worship, and that just as passionate we are about coming here today and worshiping and giving you our gifts of praise, our financial resources, Lord, that we would surrender every part of our life, understanding that this, too, is at the heart of worship. So, Lord, help us, we pray, until you come or call us home. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen.